0: I'm not really looking forward, if Nick agrees with Helene and Tony. So Nick is at the University College uh, London <laughs> and uh, uh, has also, again, I think, like me, a bit more of an institutional perspective. So I'm really looking forward to see disagreement and agreement. Nick. Thank you. Uh, good morning. Uh, thank you very much for the invitation to speak. I'm not an expert in any way on Russia, Russia relations with the EU. I'm a fascinated um, layman. Um, so I am going to be... Um, my remarks are built around, as Heidi said, a kind of a more institutional perspective on the EU and its foreign policy system and how that actually works, um, and I am going to agree with the previous two speakers, because that's very safe and easy. Um, I'd like to start, though, kind of, uh, before I kind of did, uh, address Heidi's homework questions in more detail, I would like to just kind of preface that by saying I think for all its current imperfections and travails, the EU remains one of the best examples of successful multilateralism. Um, the challenge, the big challenge it has, is in terms of protecting and maintaining an international rules-based system, of which it sees itself as a very important part, but also persuading other powers, other other actors, that the system is worthwhile and merits their continued uh, and ongoing support and participation. Um, and that's, if you <coughs> like, a kind of a bigger, if you like, a bigger normative challenge, as, 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 as Helena has kind of, uh, indicated. Um, in terms of the first question then, what are the most pressing challenges? Um, I'm, I mean, we had a, a kind of quite exhaustive list of the external challenges uh, at the start, so I'm going to just focus on a few of what I think are the kind of the big internal challenges. And the interesting thing in thinking about this, um, this non-exhaustive list is actually there's very little that's particularly new about them. As, as EU scholars and foreign policy scholars, we've been looking at these in various forms for 20, 25 years. Longer, in fact, um, but these issues remain. Uh, there remain sort of questions that uh, that that, that, re- that require some kind of answer. So the first one I would suggest is institutional issues. Um, despite the ambitions of the Lisbon Treaty, um, the capacity of the EU and its members to use the EU foreign policy system to best effect is not always clear. Um, we see that latterly in the last few years, in the kind of tensions internally, for example, between the different decision-making uh, uh, components of the EU foreign policy system. So the emergence of the European Council as a very important agenda setter and decision maker on big foreign policy issues—Russia, Iran, China, etc.—somewhat relegating the Foreign Affairs Council, which for many years has been the kind of focal point, to an almost secondary status. Which in turn has had an impact on the willingness of foreign ministers and a lot of member states to really engage in those kind of discussions. And those tensions as well are reflected at the administrative level and diplomatic level in terms of relationships, for example, between the Political and Security Committee, again, which was meant to have a lot of impact on creating a more coherent uh, member state position on foreign policy. Uh, and what's happening with other structures such as co and the External Action Service. And as Tony used to mentioned as well, the kind of potential of a move to w- towards qualified majority voting in foreign policy will have potentially significant ramifications for the effectiveness of that foreign policy. That's the kind of first set of issues. Note I'm giving you no answers here, I'm just kind of raising <laughs> more questions. Um, the second one is an increase in the degree of internal contestation between member states about foreign policy and what it's for and what it should be doing. Um, and I think that reflects a broader internal contest over norms and values that has become much more pronounced in recent years and not only in foreign policy. So we see Heidi and I, as I say, Heidi and I have been working on this in the context of the PSC and we've seen increasing evidence or evidence of increasing fragmentation and contestation. Uh, In the PSC, for example, in uh, the European Council, with certain states, um, particularly but not only Hungary, for example, which are much happier and much more willing to challenge common positions, to say no, to stand and be isolated something that previously would have, been, uh, 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 would, have, would have been frowned upon. And this has created a much, it makes, it makes the kind of uh, creation of a, a, a coherent uh, a, and, 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 and common foreign policy position on some issues much, much more difficult. And I, suspo- I suppose that links to, is there potentially a broader sense of malaise in the integration project that we see at the moment, the impact of the rise of populism and populist governments, so that's a big factor. Um, That leads to the capacity, more generally, uh, to achieve genuine EU positions and leverage EU power resources. Um, Are member states willing to allow the external action service and the high representative to really take the lead, to use their uh, place in the system to produce coherent uh, positions that that bring everyone together? So we see that in some contexts. But, for example, with denuclearization and uh, and North Korea, for example, the member states would be very unwilling to let... The EU institutions and EU uh, actors sort of take a lead on that. Um, and that in turn has an effect on the EU's crisis reaction time. How effectively can the EU actually respond to foreign security policy crises? It's very good at pre and post crisis, perhaps, not so good at actually dealing with what's happening uh, in real time. And that leads to a broader question of whether. The member states can use the CFSP and the EU foreign policy structures to kind of future-proof the EU against bigger, longer-term foreign policy crises. The impacts of climate change, for example, we see uh, writ large. Um, fourth, uh, Brexit, I've got to say it. Um, um, This poses a very significant administrative, legal and political challenge to the EU. It's taking up a lot of bandwidth and let's be honest, I'm quite sure that in Brussels the officials and politicians have much better things to do with their time than spend lots of time trying to work out what the future relationship with the UK is going to be. And also having to deal with the fact that the absence of the UK from the EU's foreign policy system is going to have a significant knock-on effect in terms of uh, resources, of diplomacy, of uh, 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 development aid etc 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 and this is going to be ongoing whether people in the UK are particularly in favour of this uh, or like it or not we're going to spend the next 10-15 years talking about this Um, so that's that is going to loom large as well uh, in in, in foreign policy questions Uh, and the final big internal point I would suggest here um, which I think is quite an under-examined or under-considered point is that of apathy and the lack of political will and the fact that that remains and has been for a long time an issue in terms of you know it's all very well saying yes we agree with this particular diplomatic position or we agree with this particular common position this is something that the EU should act upon and this is this is this is our, uh, what, what we agree on fine but then actually doing something about it making, putting in the resources necessary to achieve the foreign policy positions that have been agreed in terms of finance, in terms of human resources. For example we had a conversation with an official yesterday who talked about this new military planning and conduct capability unit which is essentially a nascent operational headquarters and there was a lot of kind of drama about whether this would ever be created and something that the, the United Kingdom were very very much opposed to and then obviously posted the Brexit decision and thought yeah excellent we can move forward with this. So That's great on paper but in practice Member States have been very unwilling to actually send military officers to staff this particular unit. So again it's all very well agreeing on the institution but you've got to then actually do something with it. And then briefly if I may on the second question can the EU do something in 2019 that it couldn't uh, in 2009? So as an academic I say well that's great, that's a theory question Uh, and so the answer is yes, in theory. Um, Lisbon means a better connection a better linkage between politics and money. In foreign policy terms, as one, this is what a German diplomat put it to me, this is what it was all about, the establishment of the external action service, the high rep vice president having a foot in, in, in both institutions. This is about linking the different bits of the foreign policy system to make a more joined-up foreign policy external action possible. And I think, in theory, on paper, that they, they've moved towards that. There's a much greater institutional memory as a consequence of the External Action Service, which uh, over time will hopefully start to produce, produce dividends. Um, and also, the quality of the papers, the quality of the outputs that are coming out of the External Action Service, it's generally regarded by the member states as being very good. So, I'm pretty happy with that. Um, you know, very good quality analysis i uh, I think that, I think that, that matters um, the importance of the global strategy in two thousand and sixteen this this kind of first big document in, 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 to, uh, in over ten years i think it was and kind of mapping out a, a kind of a, a, some kind of approach to the world. This has given EU foreign policy a focal point and it 's particularly important that i think because the member states at twenty eight signed off on this it 's very hard for them to or it 's harder for them to push back then on proposals by the External Action Service, proposals by the High Representative to then implement some of those particular ambitions. Um, That as well supports the capacity of the High Representative Vice President um, in her role of uh, Chief Diplomat Obviously, Mogherini has been very visible in that regard. She um, managed to bring home the uh, uh, Iran negotiations based on a lot of long and quite tortuous work by her predecessors, Solana and Cathy Ashton, and she's been very, very good in that effect. And I think that's kind of that sets the, if you like, the the uh, sets a precedent, creates a particular pathway that future High Representatives will hopefully be able to build on. So that's so that's good. And finally, one of the things that they can do now that they can't, they couldn't do in 2019, uh, couldn't do in 2009, talking about defence. Whether that's a good thing, whether the EU should talk about defence, is a slightly different question, but they can. So we have Permanent Structured Cooperation in Defence, we have the MPCC, we have an EU Defence Fund. These are, you know, compared to what went before, these are very significant developments in terms of the EU's sort of foreign policy system and what it looks at. Um, this does not mean, despite the screaming headlines in the Daily Express, that there's going to be some massive EU army. I note that the German Defence Minister has actually made a, a, given an interview uh, in the last 24 hours saying we're moving towards this, kind of uh, this kind of EU army. And I think that, that is kind of uh, uh, unnecessarily distracting from what this means, which is actually basically, again, getting member states to put their money where their mouth is and to think more strategically. But again, we have to say... What would the impact of an increased defence capacity at EU level do for the EU's supposed normative power, its capacity to act effectively as a civilian power? Will it, you know, will it, are the rewards sufficient for what might potentially be lost? And I just conclude then with the third question. Um, like Helen, I've only got one point on that. Um, so is the EU willing, willing to do something more, something different um, now than ten years ago, well, I would say it depends who you ask. If you talk to uh, talk talk to the EAS or the kind of the Commission staff, yes, the institutions are yes, yes, we are, we're willing to do things. If you talk to the member states, like, meh, um, it depends. In theory, but it remains to be seen. So, thank you very much. <laughs> okay, thank you very much, Nick. Uh, I think also again a very nice compliment. Perspective to the other school, also focusing much more on this institutional perspective. That, of course, you have. You also automatically get, I think, if you engage much more with the process process.